When I look at the clock uh, right now, I think, whoa, my time's almost up. Um, but this is, this is a, a one-off. I, I still remember the day when basically every church had its main worship service at 11 a.m. Um, when I came to Toronto as a pastor 43 years ago, um, back in the day when churches still had ads in the Toronto Star, and you would look at the times, basically every one was something like 9.45 Sunday school and 11 a.m. morning worship. You would think it was written in the New Testament. But, uh, but it's not, and, and so we can meet at various times. I do hope that um, as, as capacity and limits change and as we move forward that many of you who are engaged with us now in cyberspace will engage with us actually in physical space as well. But whether you're here or there, uh, we're glad you're here or there with us. Some days in our experience just become unforgettable. One of mine happened uh, 44 years ago, March 1977, Saturday morning, and, and I, along with a pastor friend, uh, spent the whole Saturday morning dialoguing with a man named Ralph Blair. Ralph, uh, Ralph is a smart guy who had he'd studied at Bob Jones University, Dallas Seminary, and Westminster Seminary. That gives you a bit of understanding. He, um, he had started a, a ministry called Evangelicals Concerned, and he directed a counseling center in New York City uh, that was, that was uh, provided for homosexuals. Now, if, if you know anything about uh, American Christian education, you, you already have a feeling for where that conversation probably went, and, and everything you're thinking is wrong. Ralph wasn't concerned that people were living a homosexual lifestyle and trying to help them out of it. Ralph was an active homosexual. And Ralph, at, at that point, was the, he was the well-known name among a small group of self-declared evangelical homosexuals. And he'd written a little book called An Evangelical View of Homosexuality, arguing that when you understand the Bible properly, taken as a whole in its social and historical context, Bible actually is a gay-friendly book and is supportive of faithful same-sex sexual relationships. For, for a variety of reasons, our city at that time, Bloomington, Indiana, was kind of a, uh, a focus of the gay liberation movement, as it was called then. And the local university, Indiana University, was hosting a, um, a, a national gay liberation, gay awareness conference, and Ralph was there as a featured speaker. 
a mutual friend had arranged this conversation. So my friend Dave and I spent the morning arguing with Ralph about the Bible and homosexuality. And at, at various times in the morning, he, he said to us, Look, Stan, Dave, I'm not the one here who's disobeying Jesus. You're the one who's disobeying Jesus. You're adopting an attitude that Jesus wouldn't take. Now, one of his proof texts was John 8 and the story about the woman caught in the act of adultery. And there, there are lots of, lots of things to be said about the details of that text. But, but of course, at the end of it all, Jesus says to the woman, go and, and do not sin anymore. So, obviously, he had spoken a negative word about, about her lifestyle. But Ralph's favorite text was Matthew 7, 1, Jesus' words, do not judge. So Jesus taught non-judgmentalism. Jesus said, do not judge, and you guys are judging me. You're the ones who are disobeying Jesus, not me. Now, we spent the whole morning arguing it. None of us changed our mind. But, but that, that kept coming up. And it still keeps coming up. It was, what, two, three years ago. Uh, many of you are probably aware of the ruckus that occurred at Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa. Another church in our fellowship. In which, after, after a period of counsel and exhortation, they had to remove a woman from membership because of the lesbian relationship that she was living in and, and for which she refused to repent. And she went public with her concerns and, and it was picked up by, by the, the news media. And for several Sundays running, Calvary Baptist Church had police outside the building on Sunday morning to keep the peace. And in the woman's remarks, she said, they're judging me. And, of course, that got repeated in the Globe and Mail and uh, wherever else in the public communications media. They're judging me. They're judgmental. How can they be like that? And that plays well out in the wider world around us. In fact, we've arrived at a time in Canada, I think, in which the chief virtue is thought to be tolerance, understood not as we may disagree, but we can, we can treat each other respectfully and in a civil manner while we do that, but tolerance understood as you must affirm me in what I believe and the way I live. You have to affirm me, not judge me. And so that's where we've come. Jesus did say, do not judge. Do they have a point? How do we respond to all that? Well, let's do the radical thing and look at the Bible, actually, and ask, what did Jesus say and what did he mean? The words are there at, in Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge. But I want to start by arguing 
Whatever exactly he meant by that, he clearly did not mean you must never express a negative opinion about what someone believes or the way someone lives. Could not have meant that. Now, here's why. Right within this context, in in this same Sermon on the Mount, at verse 6 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, interpreters wrestle with the question, who exactly are the dogs and the pigs that Jesus is talking about here when he says, don't, don't waste your time trying to speak wisely to them. But everyone agrees it's a figure of speech. Jesus is really not concerned about, about what you do with those four-legged creatures, whether Chihuahua or Great Dane. He's obviously talking about people, a certain kind of people, and, and if he's calling us to determine that some of them fall into this category that, that could be pejoratively called dogs or pigs, that's making a negative judgment about those people. A first century Jew wouldn't think of calling someone a pig as a positive affirmation. And then, at verse 15, same chapter, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. By their fruit you will recognize them. You will have to examine what they teach and how they live And you will have to come to the conclusion about some people, they're false prophets. They claim to speak for God, but they don't. It's judging them negatively. Now, that's in the words of Jesus in the very same context. But when, when we look more broadly at the rest of the New Testament, which Jesus would affirm... We see it in many ways. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is is correcting the Corinthian church for their false kind of grace that allows them to still accept within the church a man who's committing incest. He says he's he's committing sin that even even the pagans around you don't affirm. And, And so as the chapter unfolds, he says, now, I'm, now remember, I'm not telling you to disconnect from the unbelieving world around you, but I am telling you that, it, that you need to judge those on the inside. Really? Does he use the word? He does indeed. Verse 12, are you not to judge those inside? Expel the wicked person from among you. And in case you're wondering, yes, it's the same Greek word. It is your task as the church, he says, to judge. To, to say if someone professes to be a believer, lives a flagrantly ungodly lifestyle, that person is to be removed from the church. And then 
as he proceeds into what we call chapter 6, he, he talks about the situation in the church in which some of them have a, a dispute, a legal dispute actually against someone else. Someone feels another believer in the church has defrauded them. And, and he says, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? In, in fact, he goes on to say, don't you know that we will judge angels? I, I find that kind of amazing. Don't you know that? And I'm thinking, uh, really? Would they have naturally thought about that? But his point is, we who are united to Christ will judge and reign with him in the age to come. And so the point he makes is, where we with Christ are going to share in judging the world, you need to judge cases now. And so in a case like this, when one member has a dispute against another, you need to appoint people within the church to judge. And that will mean saying to someone, you're in the wrong here. Negative judgment. In, in 1 John 4 and in 2 John, two of the epistles by John, he, he says you, you've got to watch out for false teachers, false prophets. You need to test the spirits. He's, that's the language of 1 John 4. Some are from God and some only claim to be from God. You need to say of some, you're false. You're not really speaking for God. In 2 Timothy 4, when Paul is telling Timothy to carry out his ministry of the Word, where he has left him, he says, preach the Word, be faithful, and preaching the Word includes rebuking. Now, if you rebuke me, you are obviously making a negative judgment about what I've said, what I've done, about what I think. In 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul, Paul states criteria for those who are going to serve as elders, overseers in the church. And, and if those are to be applied, that means that sometimes the church will have to say to someone, you don't really meet the criteria, negative judgment. Christ himself in Revelation 2 and 3, the risen Christ, speaks to the seven churches through John. And, and he expresses both commendation and condemnation and calls them to repent. In fact, you, you can't preach repentance without making negative judgments. Or think of it this way. Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's suppose we can, we can dredge up from the graves a, a certain group of people from the first century Israel world. Let's, let's say we can bring up back from the graves to talk with us about their experience back then a group called, say, Pharisees. So we'll, we'll get the Pharisees together and we'll say to them, look, people around us point to Jesus' words and they remind us, 
Jesus was a very non-judgmental fellow. Is that true? Is that the way you experienced him? They would say, have you ever opened your Bible to Matthew 23? Have you ever read how he called us blind guides? Multiple times, actually. How he called us whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside and full of bones of dead people on the inside. Have you ever read that? Does that sound non-judgmental? Now, I could go on, but I think the point is clear. Whatever Jesus meant when he said, do not judge, he did not mean you must never express a negative judgment about what someone believes or the way someone lives. He did it. His apostles did it. They called the church to do it. So what did he mean? Well, it all becomes clear if you read beyond do not judge. Because he did not say, do not judge, full stop, period. This is what he said. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, what Jesus said was, do not judge hypocritically. Because, he says, when, when you apply a standard of judgment to others, that's an expression of your conscience about what's right and wrong. And God will hold you to account to live up to your conscience. If you're going to apply those standards to other people, you'd better apply them to yourself. You'll be judged by those standards. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Romans 14, where, where Paul makes the point, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever you don't have faith to believe is right. If you do it, well, it's sin. He said in that context, all foods are clean, but for the one who regards it as unclean, for a variety of reasons, it is unclean for that person to violate their conscience. So Jesus is saying, before you judge other people, be sure you judge yourself. And then to, to make the point even more powerfully, he, he utters this, this well-known bit of exaggeration, hyperbole. It's, it's, it's really an outrageous kind of hyperbole, but everyone understands that it's making a point that way. When he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You, you may see a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, but it's just a bit of sawdust that's fallen off that board that's in your eye. 
And then notice he says, you hypocrite. How judgmental could Jesus be? Called him such a person a hypocrite. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Deal with yourself and your own sin first. It may be that Jesus is suggesting here we are prone to see in others the same faults that are actually present in us. We've become very accustomed to their, their existence in us. We just don't want to admit it and deal with it. But we sure can recognize it because we see it up close and we can find it in others. And in some ways, we may make ourselves feel better by condemning in others what actually we know to be true in us. The fact is, we're, we are often kind of blind to our faults. We're li- living in denial. And, and we just don't, we don't understand, don't recognize maybe how often we commit certain sins. I, twice I've had the chance to teach at a seminary in Brazil. And when I was there the first time, I, I went because the connection was a, a pastor of a congregational church in that city who had uh, had a sabbatical year in Ontario and did some studies at our seminary. We got acquainted and he was a pastor there and he taught part-time in the seminary. So the, the first First Sunday morning I'm there, I'm, I'm in their church building teaching one of their comunidades, one of their community Sunday schools. They had three of them, different parts of town in the morning. Main service was in the evening in Brazil. See, you really can do it in the evening instead of the morning. Anyway, I'm teaching this group, and, and I don't speak Portuguese, so Carlos was translating for me, and I'm... I, I used an illustration about playing baseball, and Carlos said, hey, see that boy there in the second row? He's a baseball player. So I wanted to affirm the boy for being a baseball player, and I, but I don't speak Portuguese. So I did it with a gesture, and I said, okay. Yeah, some of you know the problem. Carlos said, um, I need to tell you that in Brazil, that is an obscene gesture. In Brazil, okay is this. So, I I learned my lesson, but over the next two weeks, teaching in the church and in the seminary, (laughs) I realized, I, I came to realize how often I was prone to go like that. So I rapidly I developed this motion of (laughs) like that, just to do it right. And to this day, the only time I would ever go like that is to illustrate what I just illustrated. If I say okay, it's like this. I had no idea 
that I did that that frequently. And sometimes we're living delusionally, not, not recognizing our sins, but we find those sins in others. Jesus says, you're, you're a hypocrite. You tolerate that sin in yourself, and you only find it in others. Now, notice, he does not say, you must never speak to a brother or a sister about their sin and, and, and seek to help them repent of it and get beyond it. What he says is, first, take the plank out of your own eye. First, deal with your sin. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. There is a time to admonish one another and restore one another via repentance. But the time for me to do that with you is after I have dealt with my own sin first. I, I think we probably all recognize that hypocrisy among Christians, especially hypocrisy among Christian leaders, is in fact a great hindrance to the gospel and a great barrier to faith in the world around us. It provides a very ready excuse for unbelief. I, I remember back in the 1980s, late 1980s, uh, the public scandals actually about the hypocrisy of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. And I remember during all that, I, I took our kids to the, the pedodontist one day, and while they went their various ways to, to get dealt with by the people there, Dr. Geller gregarious Dr. Geller came out to the waiting room, plopped down in the seat beside me and said, so Stan, what is it with Baker and Swaggart anyway? Dr. Geller was a um, sort of a secularized Jew. And, and I, I had to say, uh, I wish I didn't even have to think about it. It's no excuse. It's awful. It's got to be dealt with. I'm embarrassed that we have to talk about it. More recently, there's been kind of a worldwide reaction to Roman Catholic priests and sexual abuse and bishops who overlooked it. And now, now we have the residential schools and that story. And the story about a church that preaches morality and yet has so much to apologize for. It's a hindrance to the gospel. It's a barrier to faith when the world around us sees that kind of hypocrisy. So Jesus said, did say the words, do not judge, but he didn't stop there because his point was not 
you must never make negative judgments. His point was, you must not judge hypocritically. Look at yourself first and ask, do I have a big issue to deal with before you think about helping that other person? Wherever the church exists in the world, it exists in a particular culture with its particular challenges. There are good things about every culture. There are bad things about every culture. In our time and place, one of the major problems we face is this new way of thinking about tolerance that says it is never right to judge. It is never right to express a negative judgment about someone else. In the midst of all that, if we're going to be obedient to Christ, who is Lord, we can't accept that. We, we have to say, no, there, there, there are things that are true that need to be affirmed. There are wrong ideas and wrong lifestyles that need to be identified. And, and so we cannot refrain from all judging. But we do need to do it carefully and thoughtfully and in a godly way. And so we need to do it with humility. And, and, and we need to do it with respect. Remember some of those things that we saw in 1 Peter. The way we respond to those who may slander us, persecute us. We must do it with humility and respect and gentleness, but we must do it. Both sides of that truth have got to be affirmed. And have you ever thought about it? If, if someone says to you, after you've made a, a negative judgment about someone, that is wrong, you must not do that. They are judging you for your judgmentalism. We all, we all inevitably must make negative judgments if we believe there's any such thing as an ought in this world. Several years ago, um, I, I was asked to write a, a blog article for, for an evangelical ministry. And, and I wrote it on this theme and in the introductory paragraph, I, um, I referred to that conversation with Ralph Blair in 1977. And at the end of the blog article, I said, so Ralph Blair was judging me for my judgmentalism. Think about that. Well, it, it appeared you know, on their site, went into cyberspace, I, and it had my, had my name and email address at the end of it. So I began getting responses. Most of them were positive, although I, I got some of the predictably negative ones. About a week after that was published in cyberspace, 
I, I looked at my email inbox and I saw Ralph Blair judging. And I thought, this will be an interesting day. So I opened the email and, and Ralph said, a friend sent me the link to your blog and I'm trying to recall the event. Can you please refresh my memory? So I wrote back and said, it was 1977, it was in the Student Union Building at Indiana University. You were there speaking in a national conference. And Letha Scanzoni arranged the conversation that Dave Ferris and I had with you. So Ralph wrote back and said, Ah, I remember the day. And then he said, If I told you that you were wrong to express your honest opinion about what you understood Scripture to teach, then I must ask your forgiveness. Because, he said, it is obviously true, as you say in the blog, that we all must make negative judgments sometimes. And, and Jesus was saying, don't judge hypocritically, as you, as you argue. Now, he has not changed his lifestyle. He's still an active gay man. But on that point about judging, Ralph got it right. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the righteous judge of all the earth, and you will speak the perfect word of judgment through Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes again. We are astonished to think that we will be given the privilege to judge and reign with him. But now, in this age, in this time and place, be at work in us by your word and spirit. Enable us to judge in a way that is true and humble and right. And keep us, O oh Lord, from hypocrisy. Enable us to turn our discernment toward ourselves first. So, Lord, whatever there may be in our lives here today that needs to be exposed to ourselves, do that, we pray. Enable us to repent and make us faithful servants of the Lord as we seek to stimulate one another to repentance and faith and obedience. We ask in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.